Welcome to the Migraine Miracle Moment. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Turknett. I'm a neurologist, migraine specialist, migraine sufferer, and author of the book, The Migraine Miracle. In this podcast, you'll learn all about how to find your path to migraine freedom without pills. Let's get started. Howdy, Beastlayers. So it's been a little while since my last episode on the podcast. I took a short break after releasing the book Keto for Migraine at the beginning of this year, which of course took a lot of work. And I have a couple of episodes that are ready for release, but in light of recent events, I decided to first share with you a few thoughts related to the coronavirus pandemic that hopefully you'll find helpful and worthwhile. First of all, uh, Going back to the book, let me first say thank you to all of you who have supported it, and a huge thanks to those of you who've been kind enough to take the time to leave a review on Amazon. I really appreciate it, and it's the fuel that allows me to keep doing this work and to insulate me from the naysayers. And thanks to your support, the the book reached the number one spot uh, on Amazon in neurology and holistic medicine, which is very exciting. And so the book, Keto for Migraine, is available on Amazon, uh, on Kindle, and in paperback, and will soon be available in audio format on Audible. All right, so on to today's topic. So it's March 15th as I'm recording this, and I'm pretty certain that all of you listening are impacted by the coronavirus pandemic in some way, shape, or form. And I imagine you're also thinking about what you can do to protect you and your loved ones. I also know that Some of you may have reached your saturation point when it comes to coronavirus information and would rather talk about other things, and I totally get that. And I actually wasn't initially going to post anything related to it, but then I realized that there were some things that I thought were important to share, especially if they could offer someone some additional peace of mind or an additional level of protection. So it's in that spirit that I'm recording this short episode today. I know that we all hope that the proactive actions that are being taken collectively will mean that this ends up being much less devastating than it could have been, and furthermore, that some silver linings will ultimately emerge from it. Okay, so now I'm going to cover the five things that I'm doing in response to the coronavirus, and this isn't intended as a complete list of everything I'm doing, but rather what I consider to be some of the main highlights. So when it comes to how we individually respond to our own risk of infection in this situation, we can divide our actions into two main categories, the first being the things that we can do to reduce the risk that we become infected, and the second are the things that we can do to reduce the severity of the infection should we get it. And I'm going to share my priorities in each of these categories. So let's address the first one first, so the things that I'm personally doing to reduce my risk of acquiring an infection. So the first is reducing potential exposures to those who are sick. So the first strategy is simply to minimize the chances of being exposed to someone who has an active infection. And we all now have a new term for this strategy, which is social distancing. So this means that I'm staying put at home for all but the most essential activities. So no eating out and no social gatherings for the time being. And most of those have been canceled by now anyways, which I think is a prudent measure. So that's the first thing, reducing exposures through social distancing. Number two is I'm washing my hands as much or more than ever. 
So there are two main ways that we can acquire the virus. One is if we inhale respiratory droplets that have been emitted by an infected person through sneezing or coughing or even speaking. And the current consensus is that this can happen if you're within six feet of the person emitting the droplets. So social distancing, which I just discussed, is the best strategy for minimizing the chances that this will happen. And then the other way we can get it is if we touch a surface, including someone else's hand, that has live virus on it, and then we touch our mouth or our nose, and we are all uh, now realizing just how often we touch our faces. Um, fortunately, the coronavirus is easily removed with soap and water. So washing your hands for at least 20 seconds, covering all surfaces, is the best way to protect yourself from an infection by this route. And the alternative is hand sanitizer that has at least 60% alcohol, which can be used if soap and water isn't available. So soap and water, water first, or hand sanitizer in a pinch if you don't have access. And then the third thing that I'm personally doing to reduce chances of acquiring an infection is actually staying in ketosis. And I'll explain why that is. So over the past several years, my primary strategy with respect to when to cycle in and out of keto has been to use what I consider to be the ancestral pattern. As you well know, the availability of plant foods varies considerably with the seasons, and plant foods are our primary source of carbohydrates. So for most of the time we humans have been on this planet, carbohydrate-rich plant foods were not available in the winter months. That means that our ancestors were likely in ketosis for most or all of that time. And indeed, ketosis may have been the primary metabolic state of humans for most of human history. And so this has been my approach the last several years as well, simply letting the rhythms of nature dictate how much time I spend in ketosis. And what I've noticed in doing so is a dramatic drop in the number of upper respiratory infections that I've had in the winter months, uh, which is when they would typically strike. I used to spend a lot of my winter battling viral upper respiratory illnesses, especially given my level of exposure as a physician. So this has been a significant and a very welcome change. And I know of many others who've made the same observation with being in ketosis. So does this mean I can definitively say that keto lowers the risk of acquiring a viral upper respiratory infection like COVID-19 or that it reduces the severity if you do so? No, I can't say that definitively. But given the anecdotal evidence and given my own personal experiences and the fact that it has zero downsides, um, staying keto for me during this period of time is a no-brainer. Uh, incidentally, there is some animal data that does support the idea that ketosis is protective against respiratory infections, and I'll post a link to one of those studies in the show notes. So those are the three main things that I'm doing to reduce my likelihood of acquiring an infection. So social distancing, copious hand washing, and staying in ketosis. Now I'll move on to the things that I'm doing or intend to do to reduce the severity of an infection should it occur. So right now, I'm expecting that I will get coronavirus at some point. And at this moment, our primary focus as a society is doing everything that we can to ensure that everyone doesn't get it at the same time so that we don't overwhelm the health care system, which would lead to way more deaths if that were to occur. So understanding that at this point, it looks like many of us will be getting it, I think it's important to think about what we can do, be doing now to reduce the impact should we get sick in the future. 
So the first thing that I do is take zinc at the first sign of an upper respiratory infection. So zinc is known to have antiviral effects, including effects on the coronavirus family. So it's likely and considered likely that it impacts this particular virus as well. It, that has not been specifically tested, though. But taken at the first sign of symptoms of a viral upper respiratory infection, so things like sore throat, runny nose, sneezing, it's been shown to reduce both the duration and the severity of symptoms. And of all of the purported cold remedies out there, this is the one that I consider having far, far and away the best evidence. There are different formulations of zinc that you can purchase. The lozenges cause upset stomach for some, myself included. I personally use the uh, Zycam melts instead, which I find to be a lot gentler on my stomach. The Zycam oral mist is also an option. I'll typically take it after having a little bit of something in my stomach to help reduce the stomach um, upset, but I try not to have too much to, uh, so that it doesn't interfere with the effects. The recommendations on the packaging are to take it every three hours until you're symptom-free, I think for 48 hours. But besides the impact on my stomach, taking it this frequently for me can also lead to headaches, um, which others have reported as well. So my typical regimen has been to use it two to three times per day, with my final dose always right before bed. And if I do note the beginnings of a headache, I will fast until the headache resolves, which is my typical strategy for any head pain anyways. It's also worth noting that you can get too much zinc. So uh, there are symptoms of zinc excess, and, z and zinc excess can also lead to a deficiency of copper, which can produce its own symptoms. So this isn't something you would want to take routinely, except when there are uh, when, when you are showing active signs of an infection. And it's also one reason why I don't take the full dose recommended by the manufacturer. And again, using this uh, strategy has worked well for me over the years. And then the second thing that I'm doing to reduce the severity of an infection should one occur is to continue to strengthen the three pillars of protection. So one thing that's clear with this coronavirus is that its impact is highly variable from one person to another ranging from a very mild or even asymptomatic infection to respiratory failure and death. And the severity appears to be driven largely by your present state of health or how resilient your body is. As I've talked about in the past, it's a happy coincidence that the things that we do to build our three pillars of protection against migraine are also the same things we would do to optimize our health and resilience and minimize the chances of chronic disease. And as you've heard me say many times before, this goes far beyond diet and nutrition. And the other keys here, which relate to building the pillars of establishing metabolic flexibility and minimizing mismatch between our present and natural habitat, are number one, uh, ensuring adequate sleep. So sleep is when our body repairs itself, and so it's absolutely critical for maintaining resilience to stressors like infections, as well as for successfully battling them off uh, if they do occur. The second is movement and physical activity. So we are creatures made to move, and our bodies both need and expect it to, in order to maintain health and resilience. Specifically, we need regular aerobic range exercise to maintain a strong cardiovascular system, which of course is of critical importance when battling an infection that impacts respiratory function. So if you have a large buffer in terms of your respiratory capacity, then it takes a lot more to get into a critical state than if you have little to no buffer. And then we also need regular resistance exercise to maintain solid and strong lean tissue, including muscles, joints, ligaments, and tendons. So everything is connected, and it all matters. 
The third thing with respect to building the pillars is stress reduction or stress management. So chronic low-grade stress is not good for the immune system. It weakens it. Eating a diet that's anti-inflammatory, including ketosis, getting adequate sleep, and regular physical activity will certainly all go a long way to reducing levels of physiological stress. But then minimizing the other big source of stress in modern life, our thoughts, is also key. And this becomes even more challenging when levels of anxiety are heightened, as in times like these. But having a solid body of skills and techniques that we've developed for minimizing the thought-induced stress response, which can of course include things like a regular mindfulness practice, becomes even more valuable in times like these. And then the fourth thing for strengthening the pillars is uh, connection and relationships. We are the most social animal on the planet, which is why our relationships so powerfully influence our health. And having a network of people who support you, who give you energy, uh, and whom you can rely on is priceless. And building that network is one of the most important things we can do for our health, yet it's also one of the most neglected. And one of the silver linings of times like these, I think, is that it tends to shift our focus back to the things that really matter to us, which means the people in our lives. So use this as an opportunity to connect with those you love, even if it's through email or phone or Skype, and let them know how much they matter. And use this as an opportunity to reach out and build new connections too, and continue to grow that network of support. One of the magnificent things about humans is our willingness to make personal sacrifices for the benefit of each other. And this is clearly a situation where considering the impact of our actions on the lives of others can make a massive difference. So let's collectively tap into that beautiful instinct. All right, well, that seems like a good place to end. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. And hopefully you found this helpful. Be well, take care of each other, and slay the beast. Mm-hmm.